Hello and welcome to the Lazy Book Club podcast, the book club for those who don't want to read or leave the house. My name is Matt Gonzalez. The Holly and the Ivy! It's David Cox. <laughs> I'm Josh Matheson, by the way, in case you're wondering. And if you hadn't realised from David's introduction, it's Christmas! And, Unless and... you're listening to it uh, another time. <laughs> if you are listening to this book at another time, that is weird. That's on you. That's not on us. Yeah, yeah but it's probably just because you want to embrace your festive side, in which case, even if it's March, Merry Christmas to you. Because <laughs> you could listen to different books of ours out of sequence, I think. Yeah, of course you can. But yeah, sometimes you're like, oh, I actually feel it. I, I'm personally not of that opinion. I put Christmas away firmly i very much do until december the first which is today so as we said it's the first of december start of the christmas season and we are doing a christmas carol as our Mm -hmm. seasonal book this year yeah it's by charles dickens it was written in 1843 good year and i'm sure most people are very familiar with this story (laughs) either from the adaptations, the drama adaptations, the Muppet adaptation, the man who invented Christmas. There must be more versions of Scrooge or Christmas Carol as a musical than like any other. I think there's, isn't there a one man show of Scrooge as well? There is. Yeah. 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 A lot of, I mean, a lot of theatres that I've seen are rocking out their Christmas Carol this year because it can be done with very few members of cast. Yeah. So they're like, great. That works perfectly. The old Vic do it every year anyway. And now we're doing it because tis the season. This is actually the first book that we've read this year that was written as a book. Charles Dickens sat down and went, I'm going to write a book. And wrote a Christmas Carol. So go on, Charlie boy. He wrote it for us. <laughs> he he, said, he did specifically. The boys need something. Yeah. <laughs> and so there's actually going to be some quite meaty stuff to talk about in the analysis this book, which is quite nice. It's going to be the direct opposite of the last book. There's actually oh, going to be like nuance. There's going to be arcs. There's going to be symbolism. <laughs> there's going to be you know character development. I don't know if I'm ready. <laughs> a point to you know characters doing things. No one's going to be kicked off a cliff, as far as I know. <laughs> hey, yeah, I mean, let's wait till we've read it surprised. first. Let's yeah. just, come on. I then. don't think there's any cliffs in London, so I think we're safe. Uh, Cliff Richard. Yeah, okay. <laughs> He's surely london Why are you kicking off me? I don't think that's what he sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> that was more kind of Beatles-y kind of, yeah. I'm using this as my opportunity to wiggle into festivity. Yes, definitely. Nothing else is going to work this year. No, I think that this should definitely help kick off the Christmas season. Definitely for us. I'm not really feeling the tingles at the moment. Maybe when we come out of lockdown tomorrow, you Mm. might feel a bit more Christmassy, you know, being able to go and spread your germs in the shops again and go to restaurants. But no end in tears. (laughs) Stave one. Marley's ghost. Marley was dead to begin with. There is no doubt whatever about that. The register of his burial was signed by the clergyman, the clerk, the undertaker, and the chief mourner. I just love the fact that it's a Christmas book and we start with, like, a body. (laughs) (laughs) Scrooge signed it, and Scrooge's name was good upon change for anything he chose to put his hand to. Old Marley was as dead as a doornail. Mind, I don't mean to say that I know, of my own knowledge, what there is particularly dead about a doornail. 
I might have been inclined myself to regard a coffin nail as the deadest piece of ironmongery in the trade, but the wisdom of our ancestors is in the simile, and my unhallowed hands shall not disturb it, or the country's done for. You will therefore permit me to repeat emphatically that Marley was as dead as a doornail. So that phrase is originally used by William Shakespeare. Dead as a doornail? Yeah. Now, the reason why people say dead as a doornail is because securing doornails, you would hammer them by clenching them. And clenching them is the practice of bending them over so that the protruding end of the nail is hammered into the wood. So if you've seen like Victorian floorboards where your nail head's bent over, Mm -hmm. basically it means then that the nail can't be resurrected. You can't pull it out and use it again because it's bent. Yeah. So it's like gotcha. it's dead. It, it's done. You can't. You can't bring it so, out. So you're, and use so you're it again. saying Charles Dickens should have done some research, and he wouldn't have had to like criticize his own like narration. He didn't have Google though. To be fair, I mean, I, it took me a minute to find that because I have a smartphone. <laughs> whereas I, I would give Charles Dickens the thing. He's not going to go looking in the library for the origins of a phrase. Scrooge knew he was dead. Of course he did. How could it be otherwise? Scrooge and he were partners for I don't know how many years. Scrooge was his sole executor, his sole administrator, his sole assign, and his sole residuary legatee, his sole friend and sole mourner. And even Scrooge was not so dreadfully cut up by the sad event, but that he was an excellent man of business on the very day of the funeral, and solemnised it with an undoubted bargain. The mention of Marley's funeral brings me back to the point I started from. There is no doubt that Marley was dead. This must be distinctly understood, or nothing wonderful can come of the story I'm going to relate. This was a time when people had been known to accidentally be buried alive because they weren't actually dead. Did all the funerals going to go, is he dead? Yes. Can you check? Yes. It was 18th and 19th century when uh, the patents for the safety coffin went through where they'd put the bell on the finger so you could ring it if you were accidentally buried alive. (laughs) (laughs) Can you imagine anything more terrifying? We laugh, but that is actually my nightmare. Yeah. You you walk past Highgate Cemetery and you're hearing all these bells going. I'm like, ding, ding, ding. And they're like, oh, that's so Christmassy. Hark how the bells, sweet silver bells. (laughs) And that's where the carol comes from. (laughs) If we were not perfectly convinced that Hamlet's father died before the play began, there would be nothing more remarkable in his taking a stroll at night, in an easterly wind upon his own ramparts, than there would be in any other middle-aged gentleman rashly turning out after dark in a breezy spot, say, St Paul's Churchyard, for instance, literally to astonish his son's weak mind. Because we all know that Marley's ghost arrives, he's obviously really trying to be like, he's dead, he's dead, he's dead. So that when he appears, you're like, oh my God, he's appeared. Yeah. I do feel like he's kind of hammering it home. He's slightly labouring the point. He's hammering the doornail. That's why it's dead. (laughs) Stop, he's already dead! Does Charles Dickens not realise that when you use the word ghost... People know that that means the person whose ghost it is isn't alive again. So you don't have to say this over three paragraphs. You can just say Marley's ghost appeared and we'd all understand that he's still dead. 
Yeah. I mean, I got it from the very first line. Marley was dead to begin with. Yeah. Fine. Thanks very much. <laughs> Scrooge never painted out old Marley's name. There it stood, years afterwards, above the warehouse door. Scrooge and Marley. The firm was known as Scrooge and Marley. Sometimes people new to the business called Scrooge Scrooge, and sometimes Marley, but he answered to both names. It was all the same to him. <laughs> oh, but he was a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone, Scrooge, a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner, hard Ooh. and sharp as flint, from which no steel had ever struck out generous fire, secret and self-contained and solitary as an oyster. Is that the most description we've ever had for a character? Well, it's one of the most famous descriptions of any character ever. It is. But yes. it's, it's so onomatopoeic, isn't it? Oh, like... it was great. I really enjoyed that. The cold within him froze his old features, nipped his pointed nose, shriveled his cheek, stiffened his gait, made his eyes red, his thin lips blue, and spoke out shrewdly in his grating voice. A frosty rhyme was on his head, and on his eyebrows, and his wiry chin. He carried his own low temperature always about with him. He iced his office in the dog days, and didn't thaw it one degree at Christmas. External heat and cold had little influence on Scrooge. No warmth could warm, no wintry weather chill him. No wind that blew was bitterer than he... No falling snow was more intent upon its purpose, no pelting rain less open to entreaty. Foul weather didn't know where to have him. The heaviest rain and snow and hail and sleet could boast of the advantage over him in only one respect. They often came down handsomely, and Scrooge never did. Nobody ever stopped him in the street to say, with gladsome looks, My dear Mr Scrooge, how are you? When will you come to see me? No beggars implored him to bestow a trifle. I just love the idea of him giving a trifle for a beggar. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's an actual trifle, David. A trifle must mean something small and significant. Or yeah, something, 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 just a trifle, a trifle, like a little bit. Like, yeah, yeah. It's, it's quite old fashioned, but you've heard it. But like, you just imagine it, you're just like, you're just down and out in, in like Victorian Britain, like the squalor and the stench. And you, you see this wealthy <laughs> man who stops and he just gets a trifle out. You're like, if he just opened his coat and just kind of brought it out and just <laughs> <laughs> like wobbling. It. Yeah. <laughs> You could do a slapstick version of Christmas Carol. Everyone hates Scrooge because he just like custard pies people all the time. Like, <laughs> Stop it. It's minus two. <laughs> no beggars implored him to bestow a trifle. No children asked him what it was o'clock. No man or woman ever once in all his life inquired the way to such and such a place of Scrooge. Even the blind men's dogs appeared to know him. And when they saw him coming would tug their owners into doorways and up courts, and then would wag their tails as though they said, no eye at all is better than an evil eye, dark master. But what did Scrooge care? It was the very thing he liked, to edge his way along the crowded paths of life. Warning all human sympathy to keep its distance was what the knowing ones called nuts to Scrooge. 
Once upon a time, of all the good days in the year, on Christmas Eve, old Scrooge sat busy in his counting house. It was cold, bleak, biting weather, foggy withal, and he could hear the people in the court outside go wheezing up and down, beating their hands upon their breasts and stamping their feet upon the pavement stones to warm them. The city clocks had only just gone three, but it was quite dark already. It had not been light all day, and candles were flaring in the windows of the neighbouring offices, like ruddy smears upon the palpable brown air. The fog came pouring in at every chink and keyhole, and was so dense without that, although the court was of the narrowest, the houses opposite were mere phantoms. To see the dingy cloud come drooping down, obscuring everything, one might have thought that nature lived hard by and was brewing on a large scale. The door of Scrooge's counting-house was open, that he might keep his eye upon his clerk, who in a dismal little cell beyond, a sort of tank, was copying letters. Scrooge had a very small fire, but the clerk's fire was so very much smaller that it looked like one coal. But he couldn't replenish it, for Scrooge kept the coal-box in his own room, and so surely as the clerk came in with the shovel, the master predicted that it would be necessary for them to part. Wherefore the clerk put on his white comforter and tried to warm himself at the candle, in which effort, not being a man of strong imagination, he failed. Could you imagine where getting heating for your office is a stackable offence? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Who turned the radiator on? I did. You're fired. Get out. Get out. <laughs> <And> go home. <laughs> At this point, we have our very first speaking character, which is Scrooge's yes. nephew. Scrooge's nephew, oh. please. What's his name again? Isn't it like Fred or something? Well, at this point in the book, we don't know, but I happen to know it is, in fact, Fred. He's meant to be very jovial, isn't he? He's meant to be the annoying one that kind of is the antithesis of Scrooge. The descriptor is a cheerful voice. You know, like Hugo from Vicar of Dibley, that kind of Tim nice but dim kind of, you know, or like um, Hugh Laurie, um, where it's like, oh, I'm in love, I'm in love, I'm in love, you know, that kind of... So, yes, there is a sing-song. There's a sing-song to it. There's a a camp jovial sing-song. Yes. Everything's a party. You just go imagine that he's got, like, an hors d'oeuvre and a sherry in his hand, like, (laughs) constantly. (laughs) Okay, just, co- okay. just comes in with olives, like what? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Merry Christmas, Uncle! God save you! <laughs> cried a cheerful voice. It was the voice of Scrooge's nephew, who came upon him so quickly that this was the first imitation he had of his approach. And then Scrooge himself responds. Well, the descriptors by Dickens were very like he's cold, he's scratchy, he's rough. So I feel like some of these characters in this book, it's less about giving them an accent and more about giving them a personality, like making sure their personality's right. Do you know Victor Meldry from... Uh, oh, yeah. One <laughs> I, 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 oh, I don't believe, believe it. Oh, for goodness sake, someone's put a yucca plant in the <laughs> toilet. Margaret. <laughs> he speaks a little bit like... And absolutely everything is such a... Limic effort. Yes. Okay. And but but Fine. make it really clipped and tight and like I can't you're you're a waste of my time. 
every single person he speaks to is just wasting his time making money. Okay. Bah! said Scrooge. Humbug! <laughs> he had so heated himself with rapid walking in the fog and frost, this nephew of Scrooge's, that he was all in a glow. His face was ruddy and handsome. His eyes sparkled and his breath smoked again. Christmas a humbug, Uncle! said Scrooge's <laughs> nephew. I'm really enjoying just bobbing in his chair when he does the voice. <laughs> Can't be still with it. You, you don't mean that, I'm sure. <laughs> I do, said Scrooge. Merry Christmas. What right have you to be merry? What reason have you to be merry? You're poor enough. Come then returned the nephew gaily. What right have you to be dismal? What reason have you to be morose? <laughs> You're rich enough. Scrooge, having no better answer ready on the spur of the moment, said, Bah! again, and followed it up with, Humbug! Don't be cross, uncle, said the nephew. What else can I be? returned the uncle. When I live in such a world of fools as this, Merry Christmas, out upon Merry Christmas, what's Christmas time to you when a time for paying bills without money, a time for finding yourself a year older and not an hour richer, a time for balancing your books and having every item in them through a round dozen of months presented dead against you? If I could work my will said Scrooge indignantly. Every idiot who goes about with Merry Christmas on his lips should be boiled in his own pudding and buried <laughs> with a stake of holly through his heart. He should. <laughs> uncle! pleaded the nephew. Nephew, returned the uncle sternly. Keep Christmas in your own way and let me keep it in mine. Keep it? repeated Scrooge's nephew. But you don't keep it. Leave me alone then, said Scrooge. Much good may it do you. Much good it has ever done you. There are many things from which I might have derived good by which I have not profited at essay, returned the nephew. Christmas among the rest. But I am sure I have always thought of Christmas time when it has come around, apart from the veneration due to its sacred name and origin, if anything belonging to it can be apart from that, as good as time, a kind, forgiving, charitable, pleasant time, the only time I know of, and in the calendar of the year when men and women seem by one consent to open their shut-up hearts freely and to think of people below them as if they really were fellow passengers to the grave and not another race of creatures bound on other journeys. And therefore, uncle, though it has never put a scrap of gold or silver in my pocket, I believe that it has done me good and will do me good and I say God bless it. Scrooge tries to bring a very logical argument as to why people shouldn't celebrate Christmas. And what's hilarious is, is that in his own jovial way, his nephew is just completely picking it apart. 
in a logical way as well, to the point where he's just like, Bob, leave me alone, because he knows he doesn't have an answer. I have nothing to say. Yeah, and it's just basically boils down to, I'm a miserable old man who just wants to be left alone. I don't actually have a reason for being grumpy. It's weird how sometimes people with extremist views can often be picked apart with reason. <laughs> I can imagine like Scrooge like ringing into LBC. Yes. <laughs> and being like, why are all these poor people celebrating Christmas when they don't even have money for bills? Yeah. It's their own fault. Shouldn't have had so many kids. <laughs> <laughs> the clerk in the tank involuntarily applauded, <laughs> becoming immediately <laughs> censored. On his own. Hey! He's like, here, 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 no, no, no. Here. It, wouldn't, it wouldn't be that. It would be a slow clap, wouldn't it? It'd be like... <laughs> Becoming immediately sensible of the impropriety, he poked the fire and extinguished his last frail spark forever. Let me hear another sound from you, said Scrooge, and you'll keep your Christmas by losing your situation. You're quite a powerful speaker, sir, he added, turning to his nephew. I wonder you don't go into Parliament. Ah, oh, don't be angry, Uncle. Come, dine with us tomorrow. Scrooge said that he would see him. Yes, indeed he did. He went the whole length of the expression and said that he would see him in that extremity first. But why? cried Scrooge's nephew. Why? Why did you get married? said Scrooge. <laughs> because I fell in love? Because you fell in love, growled Scrooge, as if that were the only one thing in the world more ridiculous than a Merry Christmas. Good afternoon. Nay, hey, Uncle, but you never came to see me before that happened. Why give it as a reason for not coming now? Logic. Good. <laughs> He's very logical. It's great. Good afternoon, said Scrooge. I am sorry, with all my heart, to find you so resolute. We have never had any quarrel to which I have been party, but I have made the trial in homage to Christmas, and I'll keep my Christmas humour to the last, so a Merry Christmas, Uncle! <laughs> he's slapping his cheeks as he's doing it. <laughs> Good afternoon, said Scrooge. And a Happy New Year! <laughs> he's so smug. <laughs> Good afternoon, said Scrooge. I can see your vein. <laughs> yeah. His nephew left the room without an angry word notwithstanding. He stopped at the outer door to bestow the greetings of the season on the clerk, who, cold as he was, was warmer than Scrooge, for he returned them cordially. There's another fellow, muttered Scrooge, who overheard him. My clerk, with fifteen shillings a week and a wife and family, talking about a merry Christmas. I'll retire to Bedlam. This lunatic, in letting Scrooge's nephew out, had let two other people in. They were portly gentlemen, pleasant to behold, and now stood with their hats off in Scrooge's office. They had books and papers in their hands and bowed to him. And then one of the gentlemen speaks. 
these people are begging for charity money, aren't they? They're, yeah, they're like uh, Sally Army. Could we make one of them? Could we? Could we mash a few Dickens books together and make one of them Oliver Twist? <laughs> that, uh, please, please, sir, sir, have some I, more. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, sure. Scrooge and Marley's, I believe. <laughs> oh, look what I'm he's loving done. the bigger hands. I've got my little bowl. I've you got, got like, my little you got, like, bowl. hold your hat in your hand. You've got to hold your hat and be like, please, sir. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Said one of the gentlemen, referring to his list. Have I the pleasure of addressing Mr Scrooge <laughs> or Mr Marley? Mr. Marley has been dead these seven years, Scrooge replied. He died seven years ago this very night. Says the guy who hasn't changed the sign outside. How's he going to know? He's just walked in and seen Scrooge and Marley and gone, well, which one are you? And then you can't shout at people. That's why no one talks to him to the street, because it's just like (laughs) you're the biggest hypocrite in London. We have no doubt his liberality is well represented by his surviving partner, said the gentleman presenting his credentials. It certainly was, for they had been two kindred spirits. At the ominous word liberality, Scrooge frowned and shook his head and handed the credentials back. At this festive season of the year, Mr Scrooge said the gentleman, taking up a pen. It is more than usually desirable that we should make some slight provision for the poor and destitute who suffer greatly at the present time. Many thousands are in want of common necessities. Hundreds and thousands are in want of common comfort, sir. Are there no prisons? asked Scrooge. (laughs) He's such a Tory. Plenty of prisons, said the gentleman, laying down the pen again. And the union workhouses, demanded Scrooge. Are they still in operation? They are still, returned the gentleman. I wish I could say they were not. The treadmill and the poor law are in full vigour, then, said Scrooge. Both very busy, sir. Oh, I was afraid from what you said at the first that something had occurred to stop them in their useful course, said Scrooge. I am very glad to hear it. Under the impression that they scarcely furnish Christian cheer of mind or body to the multitude, returned the gentleman, a few of us are endeavouring to raise a fund to buy the poor some meat and drink and means of warmth, We choose this time because it is a time, of all others, when want is keenly felt and abundance rejoices. What shall I put you down for? Nothing, Scrooge replied. you, You wish to be anonymous? I wish to be left alone, said Scrooge. Since you ask me what I wish, gentlemen, that is my answer. I don't make merry myself at Christmas and I can't afford to make idle people merry. I help to support the establishments I have mentioned. They cost enough and those who are badly off must go there. Many can't go there and many would rather die. If they would rather die, 
said Scrooge. They had better do it and decrease the surplus population. Besides, excuse me, I don't know that. But, but you might know it, observed the gentleman. It's not my business, Scrooge returned. It's enough for a man to understand his own business and not to interfere with other people's. Mine occupies me constantly. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Seeing clearly that it would be useless to pursue the point, the gentleman withdrew. Scrooge resumed his labours with an improved opinion of himself and in a more facetious temper than was usual with him. Meanwhile, the fog and darkness thickened so that people ran about with flaring links, proffering their services to go before horses in carriages and conduct them on their way. The ancient tower of a church, whose gruff old bell was always peeping slyly down at Scrooge out of a gothic window in the wall, became invisible and struck the hours and quarters in the clouds with tremulous vibrations afterwards, as if teeth were chattering in its frozen head up there. The cold became intense. In the main street, at the corner of the court, some labourers were repairing the gas-pipes, and had lighted a great fire in a brazier, round which a party of ragged men and boys were gathered, warming their hands and winking their eyes before the blaze in rapture. The water-plug being left in solitude, its overflowing suddenly congealed and turned to misanthropic ice. The brightness of the shops, where holly sprigs and berries cackled in the lamp-heat of the windows, made pale faces ruddy as they passed. Palterers' and grocers' trades became a splendid joke, a glorious pageant, with which it was next to impossible to believe that such dull principles as bargain and sale had anything to do. The Lord Mayor, in the stronghold of the mighty mansion house, gave orders to his fifty cooks and butlers to keep Christmas as a Lord Mayor's household should, and even the little tailor, whom he had fined five shillings on the previous Monday for being drunk and bloodthirsty in the streets, <laughs> stirred up tomorrow's pudding in his garret, while his lean wife and the baby sallied out to buy the beef. What's hilarious with this description is you can understand why that film being called The Man Who Invented Christmas was so apt, because so many of the idyllic pictures that we paint in our own minds when it comes to Christmas have been painted in that scenery of London with the holly sprigs yeah. and sales and bargains and people gathering around fires and grocers and people going out shopping for food and this kind of merriment. And the Victorians are definitely the origins of our modern day Christmas. If, if it wasn't for them and the way that they celebrated Christmas, I don't think Christmas would look this way today. Well, it was Victoria and Albert did the first. The, the first Christmas, Christmas tree, so yeah, came from them. Mm -hmm. Christmas cards. The first, yeah. Well, cards what's brilliant? I, we need to post some Christmas cards. Victorian Christmas cards are terrifying. Have you seen <laughs> them? No. We'll put them on Instagram. They're the most bizarre things in the world because they used to be collectors' items. People used to keep them, and they were like almost works of art. But they just got the strangest things of like big birds eating kids and like skeletons and bats and like the weirdest stuff you've ever seen on your on your Christmas card ever. Was like, it a way for like, you know, 
amateur artists to, to make some money. I'm not sure, but but what's interesting is is that listening to the the descriptions that Charles Dickens paints here, it's very gothic. Everything's dark and gloomy and foggy, and like oh, you can just see lights peeking through, and it's like oh, this this cold temperature to it, and it just shows you this kind of like you know this is the Dracula era, this is the Frankenstein era, this is when all of this all this literature is being written. It's very dark, it's very gothic, it's very foreboding, it's very brooding, and so that kind of sets the tone for this. Mm. And so it's in all the descriptions. And so, and maybe that's why these Christmas cards kind of look so alternative now to us, because they were just obsessed with this like macabre, you know, I suppose this is the same time as uh, Barnum and yeah, all that sure. kind of stuff. It's, it's this kind of like fascination with the curiosity. And, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And it's just, I think that's it, it even spilled into the festive season. So it's just really interesting. I think this is a really good snapshot, like a really good historical snapshot of what Britain and London and, and Christmas was like in this time. Foggier yet and colder, piercing, searching, biting cold, if the good St Dunstan had but nipped the evil spirit's nose with a touch of such weather as that, instead of using his familiar weapons, then indeed he would have roared to lusty purpose. The owner of one scant young nose, gnawed and mumbled by the hungry cold as bones are gnawed by dogs, stooped down at Scrooge's keyhole to regale him with a Christmas carol. But at the first sound of... God bless you, merry gentlemen, <laughs> nothing you dismay. Scrooge seized the ruler with such energy of action that the singer fled in terror, leaving the keyhole to the fog and even more congenial frost. Is he just like singing through the keyhole? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Is this like a festive not done ginger? I dare anyone to do that. Just open your neighbour's letterbox and just go, Silent night. <laughs> Get out of my head. And just freak them out and just run away and don't and just don't I, mention it. <laughs> I suppose the modern equivalent is little baby Anna from Frozen going, It's so true. <laughs> That's where they stole it from. Disney steals everything. They stole yeah, they did, yeah. <laughs> At length the hour of shutting up the counting house arrived. With an ill will, Scrooge dismounted from his stool and tacitly admitted the fact to the expectant clerk in the tank, who instantly snuffed his candle out and put on his hat. "'You'll want all day tomorrow, I suppose,' said Scrooge. And then the clerk responds. In this allegory, he's meant to represent the working class. I think this is something you need to probably point out for international listeners, because this is something that really struck Paige when she first moved here. My wife's Australian.' Class doesn't really exist in Australia. Although they have wealthy people and poor people, it's not a class system in that sense because pretty much everyone's just Aussie and a little bit bogan. Whereas here, <laughs> you get a definite, like, oh, they're upper class, oh, they're middle class, oh, they're lower oh, class. It's but a like, very British thing. That, and then some. It's like such a nuanced sub-layer yes. within sub-layers. And so I feel like we need to kind of pay homage to that. Bob Cratchit in this book represents the working class who are taken for a ride by the ruling class, i.e. Scrooge. So I don't know if we're going to offend anybody here by suggesting a working class, what we deem a working class accent. 
whether we go for a regional one or whether we just go for an East End or thing. But I feel like there needs to be this kind of working class roots feel to him. And then maybe we can play with something else. What What are you thinking, David? Just make him really, make him really, really dense and sort of. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. All right. I'll go. Yeah. Really thick. Yeah. Okay. It's quite convenient, sir. It's not convenient, said Scrooge. And it's not fair. If I was to stop half a crown for it, you'd think yourself ill-used, I'll be bound. The clerk smiled faintly. And yet, said Scrooge, you don't think me ill-used when I pay a day's wages for no work. The clerk observed that it was only once a year. A poor excuse for picking a man's pocket every 25th of December said Scrooge, buttoning his great coat to the chin. But I suppose you must have the whole day. Be here all the earlier next morning. The clerk promised that he would, and Scrooge walked out with a growl. The office was closed in a twinkling, and the clerk, with the long ends of his white comforter dangling below his waist, for he boasted no great coat, went down a slide on Corn Hill, at the end of a lane of boys, twenty times in honour of its being Christmas Eve, and then ran home to Camden Town as hard as he could pelt a long way. to play at Blind Man's Buff. Scrooge took his melancholy dinner in his usual melancholy tavern, and having read all the newspapers and beguiled the rest of the evening with his banker's book, went home to bed. He lived in chambers which had once belonged to his deceased partner. They were a gloomy suite of rooms, in a lowering pile of building up a yard, where it had so little business to be, but one could scarcely help fancying it must have run there when it was a young house, <laughs> playing at hide-and-seek with other houses, and have forgotten the way out again. So random. It was old enough now and dreary enough, for nobody lived in it but Scrooge, the other rooms being all let out as offices. The yard was so dark that even Scrooge, who knew its every stone, was fain to grope with his hands. The fog and frost so hung about the black old gateway of the house that it seemed as if the genius of the weather sat in mournful meditation on the threshold. Now it is a fact that there was nothing at all particular about the knocker on the door, except that it was very large. It was also a fact that Scrooge had seen it night and morning during his whole residence in that place, also that Scrooge had as little of what is called fancy about him as any man in the City of London, even including, which is a bold word, the corporation, alderman and livery, let it also be borne in mind that Scrooge had not bestowed one thought on Marley since his last mention of his seven years dead partner that afternoon, and then let any man explain to me, if he can, how it happened that Scrooge, having his key in the lock of the door, saw the knocker, without its undergoing any intermediate process of change, not a knocker, but Marley's face. Marley's face. It was not in impenetrable shadow, as the other objects in the yard were, but had a dismal light about it, 
like a bad lobster in a dark cellar. (laughs) (laughs) Random. (laughs) It was not angry or ferocious, but looked at Scrooge as Marley used to look, with ghostly spectacles turned up on its ghostly forehead. The hair was curiously stirred, as if by breath of hot air, and though the eyes were wide open, they were perfectly motionless. That, and its livid colour, made it horrible. But its horror seemed to be in spite of the face, and beyond its control, rather than a part of its own expression. As Scrooge looked fixedly at this phenomenon, it was a knocker again. To say that he was not startled, or that his blood was not conscious of that terrible sensation to which it had been a stranger from infancy would be untrue, But he put his hand upon the key he had relinquished, turned it sturdily, walked in, and lighted his candle. He did pause, with a moment's irresolution, before he shut the door, and he did look cautiously behind it first, as if he half expected to be terrified by the sight of Marley's pigtail sticking out into the hall. <laughs> so he's thinking the back of his head's going to be out the back because the front of the head was out the front. Yeah. Brilliant. She said pigtails because then it completely like makes it sound. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he just looks like Angelica from Rugrats. Nah, 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 nah. Yeah. <laughs> but there was nothing on the back of the door except the screws and nuts that held the knocker on. So he said, poo, poo, and closed it with a bang. So immature. (laughs) I I love that in Victorian times, poo is just a word that people use all the time. Yeah, but did poo mean excrement? It just means to dismiss. Dismiss as being foolish or impractical. The sound resounded through the house like thunder. Every room above and every cask in the wine merchant cellar below appeared to have a separate peal of echoes of its own. Scrooge was not a man to be frightened by echoes. He fastened the door and walked across the hall and up the stairs, slowly too, trimming his candle as he went. You may talk vaguely about driving a coach and six up a good old flight of stairs, or through a bad young act of Parliament, but I mean to say you might have got a hearse up that staircase and taken it broadwise, with the splinter bar toward the wall and the door toward the balustrades and done it easily. There was plenty of width for that and room to spare, which is perhaps the reason why Scrooge thought he saw a locomotive hearse going on before him in the gloom. Half a dozen gas lamps out of the street wouldn't have lighted the entry too well, so you may suppose that it was pretty dark with Scrooge's dip. Up Scrooge went, not caring a button for that. Darkness is cheap, and Scrooge liked it. But before he shut his heavy door, he walked through his rooms to see that all was right. He had just enough recollection of the face to desire to do that. Sitting room, bedroom... Lumber room. All as they should be. Nobody under the table. Nobody under the sofa. A small fire in the grate. Spoon and basin ready. And a little saucepan of gruel. Scrooge had a coal in his head upon the hob. Nobody under the bed. Nobody in the closet. Nobody in his dressing gown, which was hanging up in a suspicious attitude against the wall. 
lumber room as usual. Old fire guard, old shoes, two fish baskets, washing stand on three legs and a poker. Quite satisfied, he closed his door and locked himself in. Double locked himself in, which was not his custom. Thus secured against surprise, he took off his cravat, put on his dressing gown and slippers and his nightcap, and sat down before the fire to take his gruel. It was a very low fire indeed. Nothing on such a bitter night. He was obliged to sit close to it, and brood over it, before he could extract the least sensation of warmth from such a handful of fuel. The fireplace was an old one, built by some Dutch merchant long ago, and paved all around with quaint Dutch tiles, designed to illustrate the scriptures. There were Cain's and Abel's, Pharaoh's daughters, queens of Sheba, angelic messengers descending through the air on clouds like featherbeds, Abraham's, Belshazzar's, apostles putting off to sea in butter boats, hundreds of figures to attract his thoughts, and yet that face of Marley, seven years dead, came like the ancient prophet's rod and swallowed up the whole. If each smooth tile had been a blank at first, with power to shape some picture on its surface from the disjointed fragments of his thoughts, there would have been a copy of old Marley's head on every one. Humbug, said Scrooge, and walked across the room. After several turns, he sat down again. As he threw his head back in the chair, his glance happened to rest upon a bell a disused bell that hung in the room, and communicated for some purpose now forgotten with a chamber in the highest story of the building. It was with great astonishment, and with a strange, inexplicable dread, that as he looked, he saw this bell begin to swing. It swung so softly in the outset that it scarcely made a sound, but soon it rang out loudly and so did every bell in the house. This might have lasted half a minute, or a minute, but it seemed an hour. The bells ceased, as they had begun, together. This is reminding me of when your fire alarm goes off in the middle of the night for no reason, and it seems oh, to go forever that. and ever, and it's been like five seconds, you're like, oh my God, shut up. Yeah. <laughs> shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up! <laughs> they were succeeded by a clanking noise, deep down below, as if some person were dragging a heavy chain over the casks in the wine merchant's cellar. Scrooge then remembered to have heard that ghosts in haunted houses were described as dragging chains. The cellar door flew open with a booming sound, and then he heard the noise much louder on the floors below, then coming up the stairs, then coming straight toward his door. It's humbug still, said Scrooge. I won't believe it. His colour changed, though, when without a pause it came on through the heavy door and passed into the room before his eyes. Upon its coming in, the dying flame leapt up as though it cried, I know him, Marley's ghost, and fell again. The same face, the very same. Marley, in his pigtail, usual waistcoat, tights and boots, the tassels on the latter bristling, like his pigtail, and his coat skirts and the hair upon his head, 
The chain he drew was clasped about his middle. It was long and wound about him like a tail, and it was made, for Scrooge observed it closely, of cash-boxes, keys, padlocks, ledgers, deeds and heavy purses wrought in steel. His body was transparent, so that Scrooge, observing him and looking through his waistcoat, could see the two buttons on his coat behind. Scrooge had often heard it said that Marley had no bowels, but he had never believed it until now. No, nor did he believe it even now, though he looked the phantom through and through and saw it standing before him, though he felt the chilling influence of its death-cold eyes and marked the very texture of the folded kerchief bound about its head and chin, which wrapper he had not observed before, he was still incredulous and fought against his senses. Right, he's got a handkerchief wrapped around his head. Like a turban? No, not a handkerchief, a kerchief, so it's like a bigger one. Yeah, but, it, but I mean, he's got like an old lady... When the Queen goes out at the weekend, like, yeah. around his chin. One of them, yeah. <laughs> How now, said Scrooge, caustic and cold as ever, what do you want with me? And then Marley's voice replied. Can we make him ghosty? <laughs> yes, he's got to be. <laughs> I think every now and then just throw something scary in as well. Try and <laughs> jump. Yeah, just be like, I'm the ghost of Marley. Ooga booga. <laughs> yeah. Oh, good, yeah. Good. Let's try that. Good. Surprise us. <laughs> yeah, good. See, when you say ooga booga, I think Crash Bandicoot. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> booga booga. That's what he looks like. <laughs> what do you want with me? March. Marley's voice, no doubt about it. Who? Are you? Ask me who I was. Just <laughs> <laughs> made myself jump. Oh, it's so convincing. <laughs> <laughs> who were you then? Said Scrooge, raising his voice. You're particular for a shade. He was going to say to a shade, but substituted this as more appropriate. In life, I was your partner, Jacob Marley. <laughs> Can you sit down? asked Scrooge, looking doubtfully at him. I can. Do it, then. Scrooge asked the question because he didn't know whether a ghost so transparent might find himself in a condition to take a chair and felt that in the event of its being impossible, it might involve the necessity of an embarrassing explanation. But the ghost sat down on the opposite side of the fireplace as if he were quite used to it. You don't believe in me. <laughs> it's got to be horsey. Yeah. It's got to be Bojack. It's, a, it's, a, it's now a ghost horse. <laughs> I don't, said Scrooge. What evidence would you have of my reality beyond that of your own senses? I don't know, said Scrooge. Why do you doubt your senses? (laughs) (laughs) Because, said Scrooge, a little thing affects them. 
A slight disorder of the stomach makes them cheats. You may be an undigested bit of beef, a blot of mustard, a crumb of cheese, a fragment of an underdone potato. <laughs> Why does underdone sound so good? Like underdone, underdone. underdone. It's the hard consonant. Underdone potato. It? It underdone is, yeah. potato. <laughs> underdone potato. Underdone potato. There's more of gravy than of grave about you, whatever you are. Scrooge was not much in the habit of cracking jokes, <laughs> nor did he feel in his heart by any really? waggish then. I love that Dickens slipped that in to quantify his terrible joke. The truth is that he tried to be smart as a means of distracting his own attention and keeping down his terror for the spectre's voice disturbed the very marrow in his bones. To sit staring at those fixed, glazed eyes in silence for a moment, would play, Scrooge felt, the very deuce with him. There was something very awful, too, in the spectre's being provided with an infernal atmosphere of his own. Scrooge could not feel it himself, but this was clearly the case, for though the ghost sat perfectly motionless, his hair and skirts and tassels were still agitated, as by the hot vapour from an oven. You see this Toothpick, said Scrooge, returning quickly to the charge for the reason just assigned, and wishing, though it were only for a second, to divert the vision's stony gaze from himself. I do, replied the ghost. You're not looking at it, said Scrooge. But I see it, said the ghost, notwithstanding. Well, returned Scrooge, I have but to swallow this and be for the rest of my days persecuted by a legion of goblins, all of my own creation. Humbug, I tell you, humbug. At this, the spirit raised a frightful cry and shook its chain with such a dismal and appalling noise that Scrooge held on tight to his chair to save himself from falling in a swoon. I love that but Marley's just had a temper tantrum. He's just gone, bah! <laughs> You're not listening! <laughs> but how much greater was his horror when the phantom, taking off the bandage round his head, as if it were too warm to wear indoors, its lower jaw dropped down <gasps> upon its breast. Ooh. That's why he's got... The That's what the kerchief oh, was it's for. Holding his, his jaw's broken or something. It's like holding Ooh. his jaw on. He spent his life being just so amazed at everything. <laughs> That's what happens. Scrooge fell upon his knees and clasped his hands before his face. Mercy, he said. Dreadful apparition, why do you trouble me? Man of the worldly mind, replied the ghost. Do you believe in me or not? I do, said Scrooge. I must. But why do spirits walk the earth and why do they come to me? It is required of every man the ghost returned, that the spirit within him should walk abroad among his fellow men and travel far and wide. <laughs> and if that spirit goes not forth in life, it is condemned to do so after death. 
It is doomed to wander through the world. Oh, woe is me! And witness what it cannot share, but might have shared on earth and turned to happiness. Again, the spectre raised a cry and shook its chain and wrung its shadowy hands. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to do That's the side effects for you. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. I need all the help I can get. Okay. You are fettered, said Scrooge, trembling. Tell me why. I wear the chain I forged in life, replied the ghost. I made it link by link and yard by yard. I girded it of my own free will, and of my own free will I wore it. Do you think that this is where George R. Martin got the maester's chains from in Game of Thrones? Yeah. I'm seeing some plagiarism there. (laughs) (laughs) Is its pattern strange to you? Scrooge trembled more and more. Or would you know, pursued the ghost, the weight and length of the strong coil you bear yourself? It was full as heavy and as long as this seven Christmases ago. You have laboured on since... It is a ponderous chain. Scrooge glanced about him on the floor in the expectation of finding himself surrounded by some fifty or sixty fathoms of iron cable, but could see nothing. Jacob, he said imploringly, old Jacob Marley, tell me more. Speak comfort to me, Jacob. I have none to give, the ghost replied. It comes from other regions. Ebenezer Scrooge, and is conveyed by other ministers to other kinds of men. Nor can I tell you what I would. A very little more is all permitted to me. I cannot rest. I cannot stay. I cannot linger anywhere. My spirit never walked beyond our counting-house. Mark me. In life, my spirit never roved beyond the narrow limits of our money-changing hole, and weary journeys lie before me. So is he saying that his ghost is physically restricted to basically where he lived? Yeah, and and as such, he doesn't doesn't know any more than just the fact that he's been sent there, I guess. Mm. But maybe it's also like a thing of, obviously, your worldly experience, the... further you travel, the more you kind of like broaden your horizons, not only does that impact you as a person, but then you also then have a change in the environment around you and probably the memories of the people around you as well. And so it's almost like your memories when you're gone or the memories you leave with people who knew you uh, can only exist in the places where you were. Sure. So obviously the memory of... Marley only exists probably around his businesses because those are the only people who remember him. And so it's yeah, kind of what... quite interesting that like the ghost, it's almost like the more you open your sphere of influence, the more your memory will be spread. Do you know what I mean? Afterwards. Oh, that's an interesting philosophical so point. So I would almost kind of argue that if Michael Jackson, for instance, was a ghost, 
or John Lennon was a ghost, or Martin Luther King was a ghost, that their ghosts would be able to go anywhere in the world because almost anyone remembers them. This is basically the plot of Coco, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and they, it's and true. They, when, when someone doesn't remember you, but it's like quite—it's quite a true thing. You'd like there's a culture where they believe you, like there's such thing as two deaths. There's obviously your first death, and then the, yes. the, the, the way more cerebral and existentially horrific is when the last person alive forgets who you are. Yeah, yeah. which is fun to think about. Dot com. <laughs> <laughs> it's beginning to feel a lot. One Good day there grief. won't be anyone <laughs> who knows who you were. <laughs> That's it. Next year we're reading the Vicar of Dibley. Christmas yeah, Mrs. <laughs> Mrs. Brown's Boys. Um. <laughs> oh God. It was the habit with Scrooge whenever he became thoughtful, to put his hands in his breeches' pockets. Pondering on what the ghost had said, he did so now, but without lifting up his eyes or getting off his knees. "'You must have been very slow about it, Jacob,' Scrooge observed in a business-like manner, though with humility and deference. "'Slow!' the ghost repeated. Seven years dead?' mused Scrooge, and travelling all the time. The whole time. No rest, no peace, incessant torture of remorse. (laughs) You travel fast, said Scrooge. On the wings of the wind, replied the ghost. You might have got over a great quantity of ground in seven years, said Scrooge. The ghost, on hearing this, set up another cry (laughs) and clanked its chain so hideously in the dead silence of the night that the ward would have been justified for indicting it for a nuisance. Oh, captive bound and double iron! cried the phantom, not to know that ages of incessant labour by immortal creatures for this earth must pass into eternity before the good of which it is susceptible is all developed, not to know that any Christian spirit working kindly in its little sphere, whatever it may be, will find its mortal life too short for its vast means of usefulness. Not to know that no space of regret can make amends for one's life's opportunities misused. Yet such was I, oh, such was I. (laughs) But you were always a good man of business, Jacob, faltered Scrooge, who now began to apply this to himself. Business, cried the ghost, wringing its hands again. Mankind was my business. The common welfare was my business. Charity, mercy, forbearance and benevolence were all my business. The dealings of my trade were but a drop of water in the comprehensive ocean of my business. See, I really like the sentiment of that because... Hearing Scrooge talk earlier, we were joking about him being a Tory, but there was a very Thatcherism thing of like, 
the individual is king. There's no such thing as society. If I look after myself and everyone looks after themselves, then the world will be fine. But with capitalism and the systems of government that we currently have, that doesn't work. There will always be people who will fall to the bottom and will be actually not even fall to the bottom, be pushed to the bottom. And so it's like him turning around and going like, I thought that it was, you know, I was minding my own business, but actually charity was my business. Making sure my neighbours were okay was my business. And I failed in that. And I just really like the way that Dickens has framed that. It held up its chain at arm's length, as if that were the cause of all its unavailing grief, and flung it heavily upon the ground again. At this time of the rolling year, the spectre said, I suffer most. Why did I walk through crowds of fellow beings with my eyes turned down and never raise them to that blessed star which led the wise men to the poor abode? Were there no poor homes to which its light would have conducted me? Scrooge was very much dismayed to hear the spectre going on at this rate, and began to quake exceedingly. Hear me! cried the ghost. My time is nearly gone! I will, said Scrooge. But don't be hard upon me. Don't be flowery, Jacob, pray. How it is that I appear before you in the shape that you can see, I may not tell. I have sat invisible beside you many and many a day. Oh, that's so creepy. He's been there all along. Scrooge is sitting there going, oh God, what's he seen me doing? (laughs) (laughs) It was not an agreeable idea. Scrooge shivered and wiped the perspiration from his brow. There is no light part of my penance, pursued the ghost. I am here tonight to warn you that you have yet a chance and hope of escaping my fate, a chance and hope of my procuring Ebenezer. You were always a good friend to me, said Scrooge. Thank you. That's a Victorian thing, isn't it? Thank you. I, I also just love, though, that you're still saying it with that really terse angry tone so it's like i just love the idea of scrooge even when he's staking someone like hating every moment of it yeah because he'd probably see it as like a waste of words thank you (laughs) yeah or like not he's so self-reliant and so individualistic that probably the idea of someone doing him a solid and him relying on someone else probably really grates on him oh definitely do you know what i mean like being indebted to someone else would be like the the worst worst thing thing ever for him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You will be haunted, resumed the ghost, by three spirits. Scrooge's countenance fell almost as low as the ghosts had done. Is that the chance and hope you mentioned, Jacob? He demanded in his faltering voice. It is. I, I think I'd rather not said Scrooge. Without their visits, said the ghost, you cannot hope to shun the path I tread. Expect the first tomorrow, when the bell tolls one. Couldn't I take them all at once and have it over, (laughs) Jacob? 
Hinted Scrooge. That one doesn't work for me. Can you just like, can we push it back a bit? Can we just move this along? (laughs) Expect the second on the next night at the same hour. The third upon the next night when the last stroke of twelve has ceased to vibrate. Look to see me no more. And look that, for your own sake, you'll remember what has passed between us. So they're actually coming... Different days. Three nights in a row. Yeah, because now they always do it one, two, three. Like, they do it all on the same night. Because it would make true, actually. Yeah. And then is is it not Christmas Day tomorrow in this? Which would mean that if that were to be the case, then... He's getting his. Well, yeah. Then he doesn't wake up. On, then he, then it's Groundhog Day, isn't it? He just he's mis- he's missed. Yeah. He's going. He's going what day is it, sir? Twenty seventh. Yeah. Oh, blast! I've missed it. It's Easter. You've been in a coma for two months. <laughs> when it had said these words, the spectre took its wrapper from the table and bound it round its head as before. Scrooge knew this by the smart sound its teeth made when the jaws were brought together by the bandage. Oh, gross. He ventured to raise his eyes again and found his supernatural visitor confronting him in an erect attitude <laughs> with its... Ch- <laughs> don't, don't do it. No. <laughs> that has two meanings. <laughs> <laughs> with its chain wound over and about its arm. The apparition walked backward from him, and at every step it took, the window raised itself a little, so that when the spectre reached it, it was wide open. It beckoned Scrooge to approach, which he did. When they were within two paces of each other, Marley's ghost held up its hand, warning him to come no nearer. Scrooge stopped, not so much in obedience as in surprise and fear, for on the raising of the hand, he became sensible of confused noises in the air, incoherent sounds of lamentation and regret, wailings inexpressibly sorrowful and self-accusatory. The spectre, after listening for a moment, joined in the mournful dirge and floated out upon the bleak, dark night. Scrooge followed to the window, desperate in his curiosity. He looked out. The air was filled with phantoms, wandering hither and thither in restless haste and moaning as they went. Every one of them wore chains like Marley's ghost. Some few, they might be guilty governments, were linked together. None were free. Many had been personally known to Scrooge in their lives. He had been quite familiar with one old ghost in a white waistcoat, with a monstrous iron safe attached to its ankle, who cried piteously at being unable to assist a wretched woman with an infant, whom it saw below on a doorstep. The misery with them all was clearly that they sought to interfere, for good, in human matters, and had lost the power forever. Whether these creatures faded into the mist, or mist enshrouded them, he could not tell. But they and their spirit voices faded together, and the night became as it had been when he walked home. Scrooge closed the window and examined the door by which the ghost had entered. It was double-locked, as he had locked it with his own hands, and the bolts were undisturbed. He tried to say, 
humbug, but stopped at the first syllable. And being, from the emotion he had undergone, or the fatigues of the day, or his glimpse of the invisible world, or the dull conversation of the ghost, or the lateness of the hour, much in need of repose, went straight to bed without undressing, and fell asleep upon the instant. End of chapter. I wouldn't be able to sleep. <laughs> no, that would rock you to your core because you'd either think, oh my God, that was real or oh my God, I'm going insane. Yeah. It'd be, it's one of those two and neither yeah. of them would put me in a mood for a good night's sleep. No. I'm really enjoying the descriptions in this book. I think this is the first time we've read something where the descriptions have been really meaty. I can see everything like yeah. a photograph in but front also, of my eyes. What's great is I didn't latch onto an adaptation that I'd seen before. I I did still create no. my own image. I'm just loving how like the descriptions aren't just words. They actually made me react physically. So when he was describing Scrooge, I got this uncomfortable feeling. This this feel like this sandpaper feeling of like, oh, this is a character I don't really want to be near. I've done a few Dickenses before, and even like the names themselves sum up and personify the characters in their very essence. Oh, I was going to say that Ebenezer Scrooge, like as a name, is just bang on. Absolutely so bang good, on. Yeah. I would definitely recommend anyone who's kind of enjoying this book to go and watch The Man Who Invented Christmas. I liked it. Film. I liked it. I've not seen it. I haven't it's seen it. It's brilliant. In terms of like, I mean, obviously there's going to be things that they've made up to make the story more cohesive and all the rest of it. But one of the things that's really nice about it is that Charles Dickens talks to the characters. He actually like pictures them and then has conversations with them. And he's like, what do you want? What's your relationship to this person? What's your and, and the characters are there living, breathing, talking to him. And you can see why they wanted to do that in the film, because you get that feeling in the book that he knows yeah. these characters really well inside out because he's given them that rich life and that rich backstory rather than just making them this surface description. It's also worth saying, listeners, that with this being so, so much more of a, um, a detailed and textured read, if you did want to kind of read along or go back over these chapters afterwards, um, they're available for free online, which mm, is why yes. we're doing this. So do, feel free to visit uh, Project Gutenberg at Gutenberg. I post the link in every episode. Whichever book the, the podcast relates to, if you go to the blurb for the podcast, You'll see the link on there and it will take you right to a page where you can download the book for free and read along as well. Uh, looking at Spark Notes for this. Oh, we actually book. have, because I think the last book. Yes, the, because it's a real book. Back last to book, No one bothered studying it because no. there's literally no imagery or anything. And that's kind of why I wanted to come on to this, because we were talking about how the characters are so 3D. I think the main reason why is because this book is an allegory. Every character stands for something or is meant to personify an aspect of society or an aspect of Christmas. And I think that's what makes them so relatable and so intriguing at the same time. So reading from Sparknotes, Scrooge represents greed, apathy, and all that stands in opposition to Christmas spirit. Bob personifies those who suffer under the Scrooges of the world, the English poor, Fred serves to remind readers of the joy and good cheer of the Christmas holiday. So those are the three main characters, obviously, that were introduced 
in the thing. And yeah, so yeah. they're not just characters who just happen to know each other because they're related or they work together. They actually embody different opinions or different classes within the system. And that's what makes them so familiar to people reading this book in this time because they can see themselves or they can mm. see their boss or they can see their Christmas party in the character that they're reading about. And what also kind of struck me from this, which is also brought out by Smart Notes, is that you almost have two opposing genres at work in this book. You have comedy, yeah, because there's a lot of ridiculous descriptions, and you know he harks back to like he does a very funny description of what Hamlet's about, yeah, and things like that. It's very blasé and it's kind of like self-aware of the whole thing, exactly. And you know, a lobster in a cellar. And kind of things like that. It's some very humorous little throwaways that are very funny. So you get this comedy on one side, but then you've got horror on the other. It's not this kind of warm, fuzzy feeling, particularly the opening. It doesn't give you the warm tinglys. It's very cold. It's very foreshadowing. There's a lot of fog. There's spirits. There's just, it's very eerie. And so you've got these two kind of warring genres going on at the same time. And it kind of creates this really nice backdrop for this book because you're like, this is a Christmas novel. It's meant to put me in the festive mood, but there's actually a very dark undertone to it that's slightly scary. But then that was Dickens's point of this book. It was to scare people. That's what I mean. We started talking about existentialism. And you go, well, it, it, mm. it totally is. Like it is. Yeah. It's, a, it's a fun Christmas story. Um, it's a great historical in, ter- in terms of its painting uh, story of London at the time, and it's as a big dollop of flipping existentialism, which is always interesting, like a Jean Paul yeah. Sartre or something like that. I feel like Dickens here has achieved the level of cautionary tale that Collodi didn't quite manage. Oh yeah, Do you know what I mean. Down. This this is a cautionary tale. This is like you will be remembered as a horrible person if you behave like this. <laughs> like, yeah, and you don't have Scrooge just go, go like, oh, uh, well, maybe he will. But like, what woe is yeah. me? No, he thinks he's, he's right. stuck to his and guns. That, but yeah. that's what makes yeah. it interesting because, you know, baddies in stories don't see themselves as the baddies. They think everyone else around them is the, are the crazy ones. Ebenezer's looking around going, you're wasting money. You're wasting time. You're living frivolously. He thinks he's got the answer to society's problems. But actually, it's like, no, you, dude, you're the, you're the problem. You're actually the one who has the big hole in their heart. <laughs> where who hurt you? Love yeah. should be. <laughs> Let's find out who hurt you. <laughs> but you're right, Matt. I think it, it, it does need, despite it being sort of very descriptive and, and verbose, it does need that, that light hand in the way that the conversation is dealt with, in the way that things unfold. Mm. And those little quips are, ju- are just taking the edge yes. of it in such a great way that me- that makes it kind of pleasant to read, even though what we're reading about is really quite horrific. It's quite uncomfortable. It really does make you like yeah. look at yourself in the mirror and go, yeah, who am I living my life for? Is it just for me? But that, that was his aim. His aim was to kind of put a mirror up to, you know, the Industrial Revolution and go, this is how we are treating workers currently today in, in England. Is this OK? Because I see a problem with it. And what's really disturbing is reading this. I feel like with the digital revolution and digital feudalism almost that our kind of economy is driving towards now with Amazon and Uber and Deliveroo and the way that these workers are treated. 
you almost we've almost seen a resetting in the digital age where we've almost gone back to this system of people with the means of production at the top raking it in off the yeah. backs of zero hour contracts and no no working rights at the bottom and it's just it, it's almost like you know this book was written how many years ago and yet still rings so true right now yeah and and that notion of well, what do you mean i can't get a takeaway on christmas day yeah are, are you, what what do you mean i can't go to mcdonald's any moment that i possibly choose can to? i throw pretty patel and and no nigel farage and kate hopkins into the thing and be like well serves the refugees right for dying on a on a boat on coming to england because they shouldn't be coming here anyway that is such a scrooge mentality and it kind of shows you how these people still exist today and this story is as relevant today as it was then there are still these people who do who just refuse to see humans as humans because of their class or because of their economic status or whatever i mean we've definitely not it's not as family friendly as in terms of the morals. Gather round, children, and talk about your future. And as part of the capitalist machine that hasn't ever stopped since 1843. Yes. What Matt Matt's trying to tell all the young children is to seize the means of production. <laughs> no, I'd say my I'm definitely a responsible capitalist. I would say that my message, if anything, is people who are employers look very closely at how you treat workers. That's actually where I'd say the message is. Rather than workers, you need to do something about it to overthrow your your boss. <laughs> I speak directly to the bosses and say, bosses, how can you do better? The podcast that cited a revolution. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, going to end up in like prison in like Bojo Trump's new alt-right world yeah. of... <laughs> burning oh, book clubs I'm yeah. feeling so Christmassy right now you don't even know <laughs> it worked I love that we were telling people to listen to this while we were put, like, putting up the Christmas tree you're watching it to Wonderful Life on yeah, yeah take, no I know take that out take that we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll definitely tone down the political side of it <laughs> but I think what, what I did really love is you know the ghosts where it's picturing the ghosts with their money the man tied to the safe who's like, I didn't do anything with this money when I was alive. And that was the only time really I could have done something with it. And it reminds me of there's a story a few weeks ago of a a multimillionaire who went, I'm going to give away all my wealth while I'm alive. And I think he achieved it this year. He finally gave the last bit of his fortune away. And it kind of really hits home of like, no, he's seen the good that his money's done Mm. rather than just kind of like, you know, leaving it all to one child or anything is like this philanthropic thing of like actually giving it away to charity because he already had enough in the bank for the rest of his life. So why did he need more than that? But if you've got any thoughts and opinions on this chapter, you can message us on thelazybookclub at gmail.com. Or if you'd like to lament your own Christmas carol on Twitter, our handle is at lazybookclubpod. And we're also on Instagram at lazybookclubpod. Thank you very much for listening. As we say every every episode, please do like, please do share, please do subscribe, please Leave do rate. Five, 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 five stars, five stars, five twinkle, Christmas stars. Twinkle. No, that's no. Five thousand stars. <laughs> <laughs> that worked, I think. I think we can have that. So join us next week for stave two of A Christmas Carol or chapter two, where I believe we'll be visited by the ghost of Christmas past. Indeed we will. The first of the three spirits. Spirit, spirit. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you then. Bye.
Bye. Bye.